Welcome to another episode of Breakthrough Science with Prime Movers Lab. Join venture capital firm Prime Movers Lab as we dive deep into the most exciting advances in breakthrough science and technology with the founders, researchers, and prime movers who are working to transform billions of lives. Thank you, Bill and Dakin. That was an amazing panel. Love all of the content on clean tech. That's my domain. I'm Ramez Nam, formerly the chief futurist at Prime Movers Lab, now starting my own climate tech fund at uh, Planetary VC. I'm joined by Jason Crawford, Amy Cruz, and Ben Reinhardt. Uh, Jason, Amy, and Ben, why don't you each introduce yourselves? Yeah, hi, my name is Jason Crawford. I write about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. And uh, you can find uh, most of my writing online at my site, The Roots of Progress. Amazing. I'm Amy Cruz. I'm one of the general partners here at Prime Movers Lab. I'm a neuroscientist by training and focus on our life sciences and biology work uh, with sort of a specialization in, in our human augmentation theme. I'm Ben Reinhardt. I run a nonprofit research organization called Speculative Technologies. Uh, we work on materials and manufacturing technologies that are too speculative to be a startup, but too coordination or engineering heavy to be in a single academic lab. Okay, fantastic. Well, we just spent two days here uh, talking about the Prime Movers Lab roadmap uh, for the future and talking about some of the barriers to success regulatorily and talking about some of the things we want to achieve, what life in 2050 could look like. What are some of the big takeaways that, that you took? Ben, why don't we start at your end? What were some of the things that, that struck you? I think one of the most striking things was that there is so much that is possible. Uh, and there, it's like the, the, the possibility is really there. And like the, the numbers work, right? Like it's not just like, oh, there's, there's like a vision. It's like actually like if you look at the numbers um, and, and what like the, the physics works, um, and so there's, there's, but there, there are a lot of ways, uh, a lot of things standing in the way. There, are, um, and and so there's like different pathways around that. Like some of it is is uh, government and regulatory. Some of it would involve like creating different paradigms of technology to get around it. Um, and so uh, that's that, that that was sort of like my big high level takeaway. The, the, I mean, and one one specific thing that just keeps sticking in my head is the fact that like there's like the the Colorado River drives trillions of dollars in, in GDP, um, and it has a huge problem with its, its waters are being depleted, but like it, it, it is possible to desalinate the Pacific Ocean, pump that water uh, over, over the mountains to the Colorado River, um, and, and it, it would not, it would cost much less than the trillions of dollars that are, that, of value that are created there, and that's just like one of those things, and there are many like that. Thinking on a grand scale, I like it. <laughs> Uh, Amy, how about you? What yeah, no, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the, you know, sometimes you get attached to the lens that you're using at the moment, right? So I'm certainly sitting in a venture capital seat, right, looking, looking at the world um, from that lens. But the last few days have really reminded me that, you know, there's sort of that, that phrase that, like, success has many fathers. And I think abundance has many fathers and mothers. And, and so it was really uh, impactful for me to think about each of the different types of capital and investment and the ways that uh, all of those things are sort of feeding together um, to, to create, I think, you know, what we see as 
both a bright future for abundance, but also commercial enterprises, successful commercial enterprises that um, will eventually come out of that and create, as we've talked about, like trillions of dollars of value. And so it was just really important for me, and I think very impactful for me, to be reminded mm -hmm. of the you know different ways and different types of, of investment and capital that are out there, not just my own you know sort of day-to-day -day lens of how I look at things. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. We were talking about the roadmap, found that we had put things on the roadmap more that were venture backable. Right. And there were many other important things in the world that Absolutely. have to find other types of capital. Yeah. Jason, how about yourself? Yeah, one of the things that struck me when we're thinking about all these areas is, um, one, just how hard to predict the next 30 years <laughs> is going to be. Um, but part of that is because of how interconnected all of these things are and how much um, innovations in one area can have ramifications on the other. So this, you know, the, road, the Prime Movers Lab roadmap is split up into these six areas. Right. It's a pretty good, you know, high-level division. Um, but, you know, as we were talking about problems with building housing, one of the things that affects that a lot is transportation, because how good your transportation is depends on, you know, makes certain areas much more attractive to live in, you know, versus not. Um, as, uh, as Bill was pointing out just in the previous uh, segment here, like energy underlies all of this stuff. If we, uh, if we get fusion working or if we, you know, if we get energy down to $10 a megawatt or less or something, that opens up uh, you know, things like desalination and, and pumping water. And so there's all of these cross um, you know, connections between different technologies. Mm -hmm. Were there any that surprised you? Any, any things that you didn't expect to see as cross connections or just possibilities that showed up? Ben. The most surprising thing for me was the fact that the thing that makes modular housing expensive was transportation. To mm -hmm. to your point about transportation, yeah. that like that that like that's the major cost driver there. Mm. Amy or Jason, are there surprises? I was just going to say I think you know there was some interesting uh, commentary around. Uh, farming and food and food technology and, and, and aspects like that. And I think there's just that sort of dichotomy between the things that we've solved and the places in the world that many of, many of, ha has yet to be implemented there. Mm -hmm. And so I just really had that sense of like, I may have thought the problem was harder than it is. Mm -hmm. And I actually think there are more solutions and it's, it's, a, it's a, it was a bigger implementation challenge mm -hmm. than like a, something we had to like science our way out of. You know, so it was like, oh, we have, the, oh yes, we have like, we have the science, we have the knowledge for this. There was incredible knowledge in the room around, you know, agriculture and farming, and so just really kind of taking that in and thinking about if there were, um, you know, sometimes sometimes innovation comes from technology, and sometimes innovation comes from business models, mm -hmm. right? And so thinking about, oh, this might be a thing that's more of an innovation and a business model implementation piece than something that needs like more technology. Mm -hmm. You were talking about this phenomenon that we need to double food production, but Right. Rich countries already grow four times as much food per acre as right. the poorest countries. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Jason? I'm just thinking about this one thing that came up about the mangrove trees, which is one of the coolest things. So Jay Storrs Hall pointed out that uh, mangrove trees are these trees that grow in salt water, right? which is something that I guess almost no other plant does. And if we just figure out what's the you know, gene or the, the, the set of genes that allows them to do that, I guess they have some sort of cellular desalination plant inside them <laughs> or something, right? Then, well, that could be just a totally different, maybe we don't need to desalinate water if we can grow, you know, if we can grow our crops in salt water. Right? Yeah, and it's interesting, we've seen startups come by that are doing uh, rice to grow in salt water, either in salty areas on ground or even maybe at sea. We've seen companies doing that for, yeah. for tomatoes as well. So people are trying, yeah. at least. 
Um, let's talk about grand challenges, what we sometimes call moonshots. But I think, I think you actually had an interesting point about why moonshot is not the best word versus grand challenge. Do you want to talk about that, Ben? <laughs> sure. Uh, my, my, my niggle with, with moonshots is that um, uh, being a space geek, it has a very like specific term. Like, the, the thing about the moonshot was that it had a very clear goal, very clear metrics. It's like you need to put a human person right. on the moon right. and they need to survive. And it's like, and, and so, so it, it's very, the specs are very concrete. Um, and I, I like the term grand challenges more because that sort of opens it up. Like a, a lot of the things that we think of are much less well-defined. Um, if, if I can riff on that a bit. Yeah, the please. Other thing about, the other thing about the literal moonshot is that we pretty much knew how to do it from the beginning, hmm. right? So it was an engineering challenge, but, right. the, but it wasn't really a science project. Hmm. Um, and so a number of other things that are grand challenges, um, I mean, you know, so, so soon after, um, the you know the the literal moonshot uh, we declared a war on cancer yeah. and there were people of time who thought oh you know hey the Apollo program shows that if we just pour money into some big goal then we'll definitely hit it you know and they found that wasn't true with cancer right, right? we're still right. fighting the war on cancer right. Right. and that's because it's much something that we actually understand scientifically much right. less and so I think some of the grand challenges that we're facing now are things where there's still a huge scientific research component yeah. and, and do you feel that that the approach the grand challenge approach of the war on cancer is actually the right one, or would you have changed how that operated? I mean, I so so having having lived through uh, as a former DARPA program manager the uh, the grand challenges that were around autonomous vehicles. I think one of the one of the biggest things that I saw was the ability to sort of marshal resources, uh, go uh, you know into multi multidisciplinary teams. Most of the you know, grand challenges required solutions in, you know, uh, sensors and machine learning and like, you know, there's many, there's many aspects to it that, you know, a grand challenge requires. And I think the other fun thing is that like humans are really competitive, right? And, and there is a little bit of something around that motivation element, you know, it's, it's a just hard enough problem, right? And bringing, you know, kind of bringing resources to bear on it that just seems to like really uh -huh. work with, I think, the way that uh, humans get motivated. So. Can, can I actually riff on that? There's yeah. so something that you just said that I want to double click on, which is um, the just hard enough, right? Uh -huh. so, so I think that, that just declaring something to be a grand challenge right. uh, is, is not enough. And you need to say, like, what, what is the thing that we think might be, like, like, it needs to be just hard enough, right? So it's like, yeah. and I think that we didn't think hard enough. And, and, about cancer, or, or maybe it's something where, like, after a few years, right. we should have realized, oh, this is this is not just hard enough. This is right. many orders beyond that, and right. sort of like scoped it down to something else, or right. like had an intermediate grand challenge. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you were to pick a grand challenge, each of you, that you thought we should invest in now at a government level or a philanthropic level, uh, is there a favorite one you have that you think would have an impact and, and might be achievable, Jason? Um, I mean, so one of the most you know, fascinating technologies we talked about these last couple of days is nanotech. Mm -hmm. And um, that is, I think, one of the sort of like underrated, you know, big potential opportunities for the coming decades. One of the interesting things that we talked about was maybe realizing that we haven't, we don't have a, necessarily a great idea of what is that just hard enough, 
you know, there's some there's some some very near-term things people are doing in nanotech. You see papers come out all the time that somebody figured out how to make one, you know, one little component. And then there's some super speculative sci-fi things like <laughs> let's build a tower hundred kilometers tall made of diamond. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like we need something in between. That's that probably feels, big. That's probably too big. That's probably too <laughs> big. That's probably right? Too big. Yeah. I, so we need something in between that would be um, super valuable. Uh, but is also, um, you know, seems a little closer to achievable, such that we can we can see a path to it. Um, and somebody was making an analogy to quantum computing uh -huh. that it kind of went through a similar uh, thing where uh, for a while it was this speculative idea, but nobody had knew like a big valuable application that you could uh -huh. do with it. And once there was that, um, a lot more resources poured in. So that's, maybe that's the thing we need. That's really interesting. I'll just inject there. So I. I uh, co-chair XPRIZE's advisory group for climate and energy. Oh. And, when we, and when we think about prizes there, we're always thinking about, we're thinking about where we want to go. And we're thinking about what is the actual criteria for success yep. that gets you the result, right? If, if ultimately the, the first Ansari XPRIZE was really about opening up space, but the actual mechanics of the prize were fly to this altitude twice. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, Amy. Yeah, no, so I, it's interesting because my, my answer to this is actually inspired by a conversation that I had with Ben at lunchtime yesterday, which was around uh, learning and education. And there, we're, we're really sitting on um, so much knowledge from neuroscience, cognitive science, uh, and other, other areas around how to accelerate learning, both for children as well as for adults. And so, um, you know, I'm really, I was really impacted by, um, you know, the impacts to education that we saw during COVID, right? It was very unequal in terms of, you know, students having access to, you know, online training and now they're coming out with the numbers showing like how much has been lost in, in math in particular. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would definitely put my energy and, and passion behind, an, you know, sort of an accelerated learning type of grand challenge. And again, I would think of it both for students as well as adults, mm -hmm. really trying to um, create serious gains um, mm -hmm. and focusing on, you know, I think probably the most vulnerable populations who don't have the type of access and, and the limitations that we saw during, during COVID. So that would, yeah. that's what I would do. Um, I, I have a, a bit of a meta grand challenge, which is um, to, to, to the point that you made earlier about sort of like the, the, the need for like many different sources of capital. Right. And I think sort of mirroring that uh, we need many different sorts of institutional structures that enable different sorts of work. Right. Um, and, and I think that we, we've sort of, uh, there's almost like a, a, a monopoly on institutional structures right now of that, that, that enable the kind of pioneering work that needs to happen. Um, and so, so the, the grand challenge is like to create more of like a pluralism of institutional structures, right? Like cool. it's like we need startups and big companies and uh, government labs and, and just many more things that like may not yet exist. Yeah. And how would you go about making that? Or what, what's your, what's oh. the bottleneck to <laughs> like, existing? Oh. The, what, well, uh, how, how deep do you want to go? I think the bottleneck, I, I mean, frankly, I think the bottleneck is in part just culture and how people think about um, one, like what kind of institution to start, right? Like, like so, so there's, 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 if we think about just sort of like, like entrepreneurs writ very large and, and, and capital, um, one, uh, like people, people who want to like start something to address a grand challenge uh, right now, they sort of think in terms of a few institutional structures and they don't step back and say like, okay, what, what set of incentives, 
uh, actually will enable us to do right. the work that is important for achieving this thing, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's one, like just being more creative about the institutions that we create. Um, and then two, for uh, uh, capital allocators, be they the government, be they philanthropists, um, they, they've become, they've, we've sort of set up systems where uh, it, it explicitly or implicitly requires you to be in a certain structure. Right. Uh -huh. um, and, and so that's, that's another one. Um, is, is sort of like opening that up and saying like, all right, we're gonna like fund like weird things where they're you know not an established university that has a really good like grants relationship relation department, right? Like all those things matter. Interesting. How much is that happening? We have things like FROs. We've got fast grants. Like, seems like there's been a lot of innovation in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think it's it's certainly. Uh, like people, people are trying. Like you know, it's like I'm trying the F FROs are are like convergent research, which which runs uh, what they're called focused research organizations. Right. Is the the full thing? Uh, fast grants. The, the, there's sort of like a, a very small sort of like group doing it. Um, I mean, frankly, it is very much an uphill battle, uh -huh. and we need like not only and we just need many many more. Right, and so I, I think what we're like we're trying to do is almost like blaze the path and sort of say like okay, right. um, so so there's a little but nowhere near enough. Okay. I'll, I'll add to what Ben said that um, I think part of what we need in terms of research funding is uh, more types of models, more different structures. But sometimes just having um, even more of the same can be helpful. Uh -huh. So right. no, literally as in um, not having things highly centralized. Um, uh, having things more decentralized, more federated, um, and, and there's a, for a simple reason, which is that when you're trying to do breakthrough research, um, nobody can predict what's really going to work. Right. If you have any, so any one funder who's um, uh, and this is as true of VCs as it is true of the NIH, any one funder is going to have some blind spots, and there's going to be some idea you bring to them that they say that's crazy, it'll never work. I'm not funding that. Right. So um, you know, in the in the for-profit world, uh, there's no one VC that dominates, such that you kind of you have to like go get funding from them to do your startup. There's you know there's a number of top ones, and uh, you know n minus one of them can reject you. You only really need one to say yeah. yes. Um, there are there's actually interesting examples of this even from um, the history of, of government-funded research. So in the in the 20th century, late 19th and, and 20th century, um, a lot of agricultural productivity came from. Um, not just the sort of central federal like USDA, but from these state-level agricultural experiment stations. Uh -huh. uh, and there's one in every state, pretty much. And um, you know, one of the one of the biggest successes of uh, 20th century agricultural research is hybrid corn, uh -huh. um, which which started to you know increase uh, corn yields um, for the first time after you know, after a long time, decades. And uh, you know, some of that research early on looked super weird. And people, you know, and lots of people just thought it wasn't going to work. And indeed, at one point, one of the local, um, you know, uh, stations was not going to fund it. And, uh, and the, I forget the name, but the guy who was working on it just took it to a different state. Yeah. Um, so he could yeah. do that because there were so many. Right. And you see Amazing. that so often throughout the history of yeah. science, yeah, right? Totally. Like, like Tico Brahe had to like go yeah. to like all the different. Around, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 So just having a bunch of different folks with different blind spots means that we have you know fewer sort of collective blind spots. That's fascinating. I use the story of the discovery of the New World that China had an amazing fleet that yeah. had sailed down the coast of India, Sub-Saharan Africa, and so on. Uh, but then a new Chinese emperor decided China didn't need the outside world and burned the fleet. Right. Whereas Columbus right. went sort of hat in hand. He's an entrepreneur to every every royal person and every wealthy person in Europe and got rejected right. dozens of times exactly. until he finally got Isabella 
on his second or third pitch yeah. right. to, to say right. yes. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Startup pitches were tough even then. Even you know? then, and, you had, yeah, and there was totally no Zoom. No also. slides. It was yeah, tough. no slides. Plus, he had to do the massive pivot, you know, right. from, <laughs> from the circumnavigating to the world to, to finding this new continent. Yeah, so. ac an accidental pivot. Yeah. Um, I'll add my grand challenge. We talked a lot about climate. Bill talked about uh, climate happening in clean tech, and we're making amazing progress, that, that exponential price plunge, but we're probably not doing it fast enough mm. to stave off you know, 1.5 degrees Celsius, we're going to miss that. And so one thing that I think about is a, a market failure is protecting fragile ecosystems or helping them adapt. Mm. Yeah. So one of my personal pet uh, grand challenges would be to make ecosystems like coral reefs figure out ways to make them resilient uh, and able to yeah. survive yeah. Uh, in the new warmer world. Right. Uh, so speaking of weird research organizations, um, if you've heard of Revive and Restore, yeah. uh -huh. yeah. uh, they're, they're actually doing a program on that. Yeah. So yeah. this is this is why we need weird research organizations. It's uh, and a great Bay Area based uh, <laughs> right. uh, Ryan there. Yeah. Um, let's come back to the, this topic of of the grand challenges and how we move stuff forward. We talked a lot in the last two days here about uh, world of abundance, things we need to invest more in. We also talked about regulatory barriers. So let's say in these different sectors, and feel free to pick one or, or I'll name some off. How much do you think the, the bottleneck is not spending enough, whether in public sector or private sector, and how much is something that's in the way, regulatorily or societally, acceptance that's holding back progress? Do you want to start in, in healthcare and human augmentation, biology, Amy? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's interesting because I think it's, I think it's changing quite a bit. So um, have definitely seen uh, the regulatory bodies kind of acknowledging and adapting to, um, you know, invasive brain-computer interfaces and, you know, elements that, that um, you know, that companies are starting to work on. So I, I think we're starting to see traction there, but, you know, we have yet to really, you know, kind of dive in. Of course, there are no uh, invasive brain-computer interfaces that one can, uh, you know, purchase now on the mm -hmm. market and have implanted. So there's still going to be quite a bit of regulatory burden, I think, that that's going to be facing those companies. But with things like, um, you know, breakthrough device designation and other things that the FDA is doing, I think they're trying to, to innovate. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking this morning about um, also uh, thinking about not just medical devices per se, but I think we're starting to see a lot more in the wellness and health and health span space. Um, and so thinking about those things not as explicitly clinical medical, right, but as wellness. Uh, there's the 513G at the FDA for um, wellness devices. And so I think we're going to see like an explosion and an expansion of how we think about health. Mm -hmm. And I think that is going to uh, require some, you know, regulatory, uh, you know, adaptation or, or innovation yeah. because it's really around, you know, we have a very disease-driven system. Mm -hmm. And as we've <clears> talked <throat> about over the last few days, you know, does, does longevity need to tie itself to diseases of aging to be a topic of discussion and something that we can, you know, work on and invest in and, and, and move forward? And so I think, I think that is actually going to be, I'm less worried about the clinical things. I'm more right. interested in, like, the health span, lifespan extension, uh, things that will actually require mm -hmm. some innovation. We also saw, I and mean, I think you might have pointed this out the other day, that the, the pace at which psychedelics have become legal or semi-legal yep. in different states is just maybe an unprecedented deregulation yeah. of an area. Right, yeah, and, that, and that's the you know, sort of legalization versus rescheduling, right? Mm -hmm. So they're still 
um, at the federal level, those uh, those medicines uh, are not rescheduled, right? Mm -hmm. So they're still Schedule One, um, and you see this sort of legalization, you know, in in pockets, right, in the country. I think in order to optimize and really leverage the value of um, you know, psychedelics and mental health, I think we are going to need to see them rescheduled and then, you know, come into, you know, sort of clinical use. And certainly folks like MAPS, Johns mm -hmm. Hopkins, um, Imperial College London are doing the hard work, like the really hard work uh, that was funded not by large institutions, but really by donors yep. for a very long time in order to get that scientific evidence that will show that they have clinical benefit. Yeah. So, and that's an example, I think a beautiful example of like, you know, a groundswell of, of people who believe that this is possible and actually mobilizing those resources. Now it looks very, you know, now it looks very, uh, very contemporary, you know, to be, uh, to be working on these things, but it's really the folks who've been grinding it out for a decade or yeah, more multiple um, decades. That, have, that, have, that have helped create this space for us to innovate in. Yeah, so. indeed. Um, ben, same question to you. How much of, the, of the, what we need is more investment, more federal funding, more private sector funding, and how much is it getting rid of regulations in the way? Um, well, I, I think the, the, the way that I think about it is it's, it's almost like there's like a duel, right? So it's like you, you, can, always, you can always out technology, you can always get around uh, regulation with like sufficiently new paradigms. Um, and so we like need to be investing in that. And at, at the same time, uh, there, there's a lot of regulation. Uh, the, the one that, that comes up very regularly is NEPA, um, just on like building physical things in, in the world. Um, and, and, and so it's like, I guess, like, I, like, I want to say both, like it's, 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 um, and I think the, the other, the other thing to just poke on is, uh, uh, that it's not necessarily like, I think we have this like dichotomy of like, okay, we need to regulate or not regulate. Mm -hmm. But I think that mm -hmm. the, the thing that we don't talk about is like, how do you regulate things more intelligently? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the class, like, and, and the, the problem with regulations is that they, they tend to lock you into paradigms. Right. Um, so the, the, the example I love is that uh, like all cars today look the same because of regulations of like, you need to have a crumple zone of a certain size. So even if you like invented a like a, like a force shield, right? Like from from science fiction, right. uh, that could just like make all cars into like bumper cars from like five feet away, you'd still need that crumple zone huh. uh, to pass regulations. So so I think that that's another thing to to, to poke. That's very interesting, Jason. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, certainly something that uh, that came up in in the discussions. I mean, a lot of things seem to come back to policy. Uh -huh. um, I'm sure there's things that are underfunded, but uh, I think you know one of the places where you can just see this most obviously is if you just step back from thinking about technological breakthroughs and just think about abundance generally. Um, you know, we can't even build enough housing today, uh -huh. right? We can't build transit. We can't build infrastructure. Um, those things, I mean, you know, uh, building houses, building trains, that's a solved problem from a technological standpoint, uh -huh. right? We know how to do those things. We're just not letting ourselves do them. And so, um, you know, I just think from that standpoint alone, you can see that the, the, um, the sort of vitocracy that we have built up, right? It's not, yeah. only, not only the laws, but also the way, the law, the way that the laws empower um, sort of obstructionist, uh, you know, uh, activists to come in and sort of slow things down or, or stop things. Um, there was a uh, was an article in the Atlantic just a couple of days ago from Jerusalem Demsis uh, with the headline of something like, you know, not everybody 
should have a say. Oh yes. And that's a you know that's a tough that thing. Ignited a, some flame wars. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is a tough thing to say, but I think somebody has to say it because right yeah. now we have just just a little too much community involvement. You know, which I mean, as she pointed out, is actually not even representative of the community. It's some tiny you know minority of folks who um, you know have, who have, have kind of like the resources and the time and the energy to like get involved in these processes and sit in on the. Um, uh, you know, on the hearings and, and so forth, right? Which ordinary yeah. people can't even do. I very much agree. Um, I'll add. Well, I'll add a plug. So there's another panel. We're gonna. We've got a little while to look left in this panel. Another 15 minutes to take some questions. Have a short break. And in the next panel, uh, Alex Stapp, who's done a lot of work on uh, housing reform, uh, will be on that panel. So maybe Alec will talk about some positive moves, at least in California. Um, I'll add. I'll answer my own question in, in the clean energy space. Uh, as Bill was talking about, the Inflation Reduction Act is absolutely, absolutely stupendously massive, and he's right. It's more massive than yeah. uh, it's scored as by the CBO. It probably will drive trillions and trillions of investment. Um, and the biggest challenge in clean tech, it's not the only challenge, is regulatory blockage. And probably the number one is not being able to build electricity transmission long range. It's not even NEPA specifically, but just that inability to build a continent-sized grid. And I'll give another plug that our second panel will include Liza Reed, whose doctorate was all about uh, doing better things uh, with electricity transmission. So maybe she'll have some more comments on that as well. Um, Amy, come back to something that you said earlier about different sorts of funding yeah. that we need. What are the, the different sorts of funding besides venture and and pure government, what are the, the different categories that we could yeah, use? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think we've seen, you know, like we were talking about before, I think we've seen innovation. I think we've seen a lot of uh, private philanthropy dollars going into science. So it used to really be, you know, kind of government government funded science, you know, and that was, that was sort of the, the main engine. I actually think that that has um, remained fairly uh, fairly even or fairly stagnant if you think about some of the budgets of places, you know, a, as they've changed over time, like DARPA's budget has been about $3 billion, it's stayed about $3 billion, you know, certainly research has gotten, <laughs> research has gotten more expensive and so you, you see a little bit of a, a stagnation, I think, in, in some of that funding. Now, of course, there's, you know, new institutes coming around, like we've just announced ARPA-H, uh, which is going to be focused on health. I think that will, you know, probably end up being a billion dollar plus organization that will be infusing capital into the space. But I think the, the, the spaces that we're talking about now with the focused research organizations, um, the money that's going into that space is an incredible middle zone as I see it because many of the things that are coming out uh, you know, of uh, spaces that have had, we call that non-dilutive funding, right? So funding that's not necessarily taking equity in the same way that venture is taking equity. Um, you know, we used to describe something, it still exists, valley of death, right? So non-dilutive funding ends here, uh, you know, venture-backable business over here. And, and the big question was how do you, you know, fill up the valley of death enough to get people across that? And I do think, you know, some of the organizations that we've been talking about um, in this private space are, like, they're not just needed, they're like mission critical to yeah. get things across that space. We were laughing yesterday about um, some technology that had come out of one of my programs at DARPA and he's like, where is it? And I was like, it's still here. Like it's, it just didn't make it across the valley of death, you know? And, um, but it's not like, you know, you can still go back and get the bones and yeah. like reassemble it, you know? But, but you know, there are many things like that. And I think if we're gonna, if, if we're thinking about abundance, right? Uh -huh. And we're thinking about how to, to leverage uh, research uh, and innovation to create that, I think we have to make sure that things survive and great yeah. things survive. And many, many things die that, that could survive. 
Um, and so that's that's the one thing I'd say about that. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think, yeah, the thing about the Valley of Death, I think, is that we have um, a whole set of institutions and infrastructure for doing science, like basic research, learning about the world. We also have a set of institutions and infrastructure for taking you know, um, uh, inventions or products that work and turning them into businesses. That's mm -hmm. yep. startups and venture capital yep. and so forth. And there's this middle step of taking yeah. the science and turning it into a thing that works. Yep. Mm -hmm. We don't have a home for that. Yeah. We don't have a set of institutions and infrastructure yeah. for that. Um, it's, we barely even have a job description for that. You know, there was a time when, yeah. when you would maybe call that an inventor. But even to call yourself an inventor these days is a little quaint. You know, yeah. you think of like you think of like Thomas Edison, who's right, like shirt yeah. coat and bow tie. It's a very <laughs> yeah. 19th century. Yeah, um, it is. And and I think I think that's where that that gap is, right? Yeah. That, yeah. that valley of death is in that that invention. We well, need a home for invention. And mm -hmm. that that's been one of my you know there's a there's a book out there. I think maybe some people have read. It's called Loon Shots. You know, and they describe yeah. Bell, Bell Labs and they describe that structure like that that was what that applied research that applied science space was something that I think kind of used to exist. I, I think it's really, it, it doesn't exist as it used to in commercial industry, absolutely especially not. in large businesses. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Oh yeah, like, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's I mean, what we're trying, like, to, to talk about my own book briefly, is just yeah. like, that's what we're trying to address. Yeah. Um, and, and the way, the, the framework that I really like for that is, um, comes from another excellent book, uh, which is uh, called Cycles of Invention and Discovery, hmm. which which sort of points out the fact that like what happened at Bell Labs, what 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 I, I think that uh, DARPA actually does encourage was one of the few places that does encourage is that it's not just like applying science and it's right. not just discovering things, but right. it's like to to invent the the semiconductor, you need to be like okay, we're like trying to build to we're trying to build a transistor, right. but then we realize like oh, we don't understand how like. Uh, like electron transport works in materials and you need to like then go back and like actually right. figure that out yeah. but then you need to be figuring that out with the intention well, of then going sense. back yeah. and apply and, and, and using it and like drive it there's, there's nothing that drives those cycles um so so i think like that's that's like the the institutional structures need to support that and then right. like the, the sort of capital uh -huh. that needs to go into that um my my like i think the, the problem is like that kind of work ends up being a public good whether you like it or not right. yeah. um for yeah. the, the the simple reason that like one um it, a lot of it is like finding a place in design space and like once you're like okay here's the right place in design space everybody else can be like oh yeah all right that, that, that's where you go yeah. um and, and the other is that like technology lives in people's heads and even if you have a patent like they'll they'll go and and figure it out um and so the sort of capital, it's like, yes. And so like one, one is that um, like more, like thinking about philanthropic capital for invention, mm -hmm. um, like, like very often like uh, philanthropic funders think about funding science, right? right. And which is great. Um, but then also, and, and, but they look at invention and they say like, oh, you should just go start a business. Um, and sort of, sort of saying like, no, like, right. like invention is, is also a public good. Yeah. Um, and then also um, just, Sort of like more like more patient capital, and you see this a little bit, but like um, <laughs> basically like saying like like I, I don't know what you want to call it, but like saying like okay, like I'm not gonna make the best return on my money, right? And saying like all right, like the goal of this money is not to like maximize my return, but to like do some amount of good with it uh -huh. and like potentially get some of it back. Uh -huh. um, and and I think like that's another sort of like way for so people like to think about things. So like a conscious capitalism version of investing in some way. Yeah. Patient capital, I like that. I mean, yeah, I think Breakthrough yeah. Energy Ventures funded by Bill Gates and, and so on is like a 20-year venture fund instead of a 10-year, at least yeah. their first funds with uh, sort yeah. of that in mind. 
And I think yeah. we're seeing some in some artificial intelligence companies. I think are being funded with. Yeah. Literally and explicitly, maybe no, you know, product or revenue plan right away. No, <laughs> yeah. just to do research, right? But, but by people who who know that, yeah, this is a long-term thing, but it could create enormous value. Yeah. So, yeah, just more patient, more patient capital. I will say this: this notion of um, value of death is interesting. There's multiple value of deaths, right? So, in, in climate tech now, we, we have things that try to bridge that first valley, maybe mm -hmm. not super well, but there's programs like the Activate Fellows, where mm -hmm. they, yeah. oh, sure. they take Absolutely. people who are scientists, give them some money to try to spin it out. But then there's another valley of death we see, which is you've invented a new technology, but now, and maybe you spent tens of millions of dollars to get the tech really working, but now you've got to build a first factory or a first mm, uh, project for it that's going to cost you hundreds of millions or a billion of dollars. And so now we have things like uh, the U.S. Department of Energy uh, Loan Program Office that you know, has 40 billion or 60 billion in loan authorization to help you finance as debt that, that first project to get to scale if you have a buyer lined up. And I haven't seen that. We saw something maybe a little bit like that in COVID, right? We saw the US government doing right. advanced purchase commitments for uh, vaccines. Right. But, but right now it seems like more scattershot in individual sectors rather than a, a blanket approach. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, the joke I like to make is that sometimes like scaling sometimes takes more research than the research to uh, create the thing in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I, I know there's there's uh, like a, a battery company and they have like this incredible technology for making batteries but they can't get it to be bigger than a watch battery yeah and they've been trying for years to make it bigger than a watch battery and it's like okay That's <laughs> like there's like 30 battery companies like that right but like, like that's that's the thing is like 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 scaling is research as well yeah. Yeah. and maybe Indeed. we don't explicitly make yeah. talk yeah. about that yeah. let me let me we've got about eight minutes left so I'll take some Q&A but let me try to ask a, a question I didn't tell you I was going to ask you, but um, sort of related. He always does. He always does. <laughs> Why not, right? Here we are, live live audience, studio audience, you're going to love it. Um, this is a time that has a lot of people really worried about the future. We've got the war in Ukraine, we've got inflation, we've got a global recession, quite possibly. We've got what looks like might be some deglobalization mm -hmm. happening. Uh, we are here with Center of Growth and Opportunity, uh, Prime Movers Lab, thinking about our roadmap, lots of optimistic stuff. Should we be optimistic about the future? And, and is a better world uh, guaranteed? Is it extremely likely? Even in this time of some pessimism for people, who wants to start? The easy questions. Ben. All right. So uh, I think that we should be optimistic. It is absolutely not guaranteed mm -hmm. and in fact if we are not optimistic like like it's it's this feedback loop right where if we're not apt like you sort of uh like um by being pessimistic you make your predictions come true oh. right so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so that's that's one thing but then there there are there is evidence for optimism still um in the sense that i think that and this is this is clearly my bias, but that um, the the problem like we have faced problems in the past. We've faced like dire problems that we no longer even remember about because we have gotten past them so soundly. Um, and uh, and creating abundance is sort of how we do that, right? Like if you create enough resources, then uh, war becomes much less attractive because it's just there's better ways to 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 use your resources. Um, 
if you have better technology, like you, we can pull carbon out of the air. Like that, that is scientifically possible. Um, and so, you know, it's like there, there are ways, there, there are ways to address all of these. Um, and so if we are optimistic enough to act on them, uh, th then it might be possible to, uh, to do that. But we do need to act. Yeah. Okay. I, I like your answer. Thanks. Amy, Jason, what are your thoughts? I'm, I mean, I, I definitely think there's reason to be optimistic. I think the last couple days, you know, I mean, I, I tell people, you know, that, that the work we do, the work that I do as a venture capitalist is like the most optimistic job I've ever had, right? Because every single day, you know, people tell you how they're solving the world's biggest challenges. I think it's, it's incredible, right? It's like such, an, such a privilege to be able to do this. So I, I absolutely think there's reason to be, um, you know, to be optimistic. I agree, I think we have to act. Um, and I think we have to act, and I, this is something that I, I mentioned um, during one of the sessions, was like, I think we have to act with empathy. I think there is oftentimes a, um, you know, kind of like a we know, we know the best answer, you know, like you can get, like, especially when you get, when you get in a room of scientists and engineers, like, you know, there seems like a way to, to solve things or a way through things. And I, I counsel and have counseled, you know, in terms of how to get these things out there and, and ways to think about these solutions, I think empathy is a big part of how we are going to relate to each other as a human population, and we need more of that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's sort of you know acting with empathy. Mm -hmm. I think is is the little the little add-on I'd I'd put on there because I think it would radically change the outcomes. I love it. That's hard to do in times of, of stress. Indeed, yeah. but that's what I think about. Fantastic, Jason. Yeah, I think when we when we think about being optimistic, sometimes uh, saying um, you know optimism or optimistic can make it sound as if we think that uh, we're not facing any big problems, or that the problems mm -hmm. will be easy to solve, or that we're somehow on the right track. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, sometimes that's called like complacent optimism, right? As if yeah. we can just coast. So um, you know, I think that's false. That's false in pretty much any age. Um, but there is a different type of optimism that says it's sort of a, a contingent optimism. I think it's actually Paul Romer who used those terms, mm, complacent yeah. versus contingent. Um, I've also called it descriptive versus prescriptive optimism, uh -huh. right? Um, it's the what course are we on, but then the, the different question is what are we going to do about it? Yeah. Um, can we step up? And uh, I think you know the, the, the world has faced huge problems before. Uh -huh. um, we have faced uh, huge social problems. Just look at the 20th century, look at the world wars and how how terribly pessimistic you know people felt about that. Um, we faced resource crises before uh, in the you know end of the 1800s. We were running out of fertilizer, and we solved that problem. So um, you know I fundamentally believe in human agency and our ability to step up and solve these problems, um, and and especially to do it through science and technology. Yeah. That's a fantastic answer. Yeah, I think the the philosopher Max Moore also called that dynamic optimism. That I also like that phrase. I like it. Uh, you know I think I'm just in alignment with with the three of you, so I won't uh, bother adding my own thoughts here. Uh, let's actually turn it over for some questions from the audience. Yeah, we have one online question. Uh, the IPCC agreed upon reaching uh, net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, however, we're likely to reach one and a half degrees Celsius in the next decade. Uh, are investors, entrepreneurs, builders, and buyers prepared to build and scale net zero energy and mobility to go faster and capture more Inflation Reduction Act credits so that we can reach and sustain the maximal scale of renewable and net zero tech starting in the early part of the decade? Yeah, it's an amazing question. Um, we are, so when I started in climate around 2010, the forecast was somewhere between four, five, and six degrees Celsius of warming by 2100. 
Uh, at the time, the consensus was we had to stay below 2 degrees Celsius, and we were nowhere near on track for that. Now people talk about 1.5 degrees Celsius as the line that we, we should not cross. I'll be transparent. I do not believe we're going to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius. That having been said, we have bent the curve, and now 2 degrees Celsius or even a little bit below 2 degrees Celsius is within striking range. Uh, the IEA, International Energy Agency, uh, puts out a report based not on what we should do, but what they think the current trajectory of energy use uh, will be based on just today's policies, assuming no new policy whatsoever. That's what the scenario is a new policy. And for the, their report came out yesterday, and for the first time, their steps scenario, which is the just stated policy scenario, no additional policy gets passed in the future at all, uh, has all fossil fuels peaking this decade and has us uh, on track for about two and a half degrees Celsius. Now with warming, uh, two and a half degrees Celsius is, is more than we'd like, but it's no longer an existential threat to humanity or to human civilization. Uh, it is bad. Some things will get worse before they get better. Now, more interestingly, the IEA has been pessimistic about future uh, cost declines in clean energy, future deployment of clean energy, future deployment of electric vehicles. Uh, it, there's, go to my blog. You'll find lots and lots of examples of how wrong they are every single time. So we should take their baseline scenario of two and a half degrees as the like most pessimistic uh, possible <laughs> scenario, and their sort of middle ground scenario of some new policy and renewables keep getting cheap, more like their current path, is 1.9 degrees Celsius. Okay. So we are bending the curve. Cool. Uh, entrepreneurs and uh, project developers and so on stand ready to, to take advantage of these incentives in, in the US, with the IRA, in Europe, uh, even China is talking about net zero in 2060 now. <laughs> there are still regulatory hurdles. We talked a lot about transmission as one uh, in the last couple of days. Maybe Liza Reed, Dr. Liza Reed will talk about that uh, during uh, her panel, every tenth of a degree matters. It's not a bright line where at 1.4 degrees C everything is fine and 1.6 degrees C we all die. Uh, but it is like uh, my friend Jesse Jenkins, I'm going to swear, and I realize that's not what everyone might be expecting on this, but I'll just, I have to quote someone that, that is uh, uh, so clear in his thinking that I think it, it uh, bears repeating. Jesse's a professor at Princeton, is a leading energy modeler. The way he expressed our state in climate uh, a couple months ago was that on climate change, we've, we've bent the curve sufficiently that we're no longer totally fucked. <laughs> However, we haven't bent it so far that we're completely unfucked either. <laughs> so we are now in that messy middle where every little bit that we claw uh, matters. And there are some more radical solutions that we should be looking at, like sunlight reflection, like at least doing the R&D mm. to understand the science of that and know if it is a viable tool for us. Uh, those are one, among the few things that might actually uh, help us. Uh, but in addition to that, the reason I brought up coral reefs, for instance, is if you look at what the biggest uh, damages are, we're going to do a lot of adaptation. We're going to do adaptation from better crops to grow more food to desalination to deal with drought. Uh, we'll do that for humans, but there are natural ecosystems, forests, coral reefs, mangroves, forests, that we could be investing more in finding a way to help them uh, survive. So that, I guess that's contingent optimism uh, that we, we've staved off the end of the world, uh, but we still have a lot of work left to do to make it the world that we want.
Can I just add something there? Yeah. Um, I want to make a little analogy. So, you know, a couple of years ago, this pandemic broke on the scene. Um, and at the beginning of 2020, you know, lots of people were saying, oh my God, it's going to be years before we have a vaccine mm -hmm. for this, right? That was totally based on history, right? Every previous vaccine had taken years, often a decade from the time we identified the pathogen to when we had a, a vaccine ready and deployed. And of course, we did it in absolute record time, right? Yeah. Less than a year. There's different ways to look at that. One way is say, look, we had this mRNA technology that had been under development for a long time and, 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 and lets us create vaccines a lot faster. That's true. You know, but another really fascinating thing is that there were hundreds of vaccine projects all going on in parallel. Yeah. Um, not to mention another couple of hundred uh, projects to do treatments, right? So all together, that was some, it was some 500 plus uh, projects all, you know, independently going on to, to try to solve this problem. And that's part of why a couple of them came through, you know, very quickly, just because there were so many going on that you never even heard of. I think people underestimate how fast humanity can solve a problem when it becomes humanity's number one problem. Yep. Yeah. And the entire, you know, and like just an enormous amount of brain power and resources and everything becomes suddenly focused on it like a fire hose. Yep. Um, I completely agree, I agree. with you. Yeah. Completely agree. I think I'll, I'll put some numbers to that. I think for me, one of the things that I see is, so last year we spent about $60 billion on climate venture capital, uh, record high. This year it's gonna be down some, but it might be around 50 in a relatively down market. And I, I think part of what drove that is the fires in California uh, woke people up mm -hmm. to think climate is no longer a future generation problem, it's a current problem. And that motivated a lot of change. Uh, we saw the fires in Australia drive governmental change there. So I think the reality is policy will get more ambitious as climate impacts become more and more evident and that will turn the crank as well. Hey, uh, great panel, been enjoying the conversation. Maybe a follow up to this topic about predicting the future for climate and energy. A narrow question for you, Ramez, and then a broader question for the panel. The narrow question is like, why does the IEA just keep consistently um, undershooting renewable deployment and overshooting cost reductions? Like, what's, what are their incentives what, what, that's yeah. causing that to happen? Um, and then a broader question is, especially for climate, it seems like predicting the future is highly uncertain, but insofar as people are trying to be accurate, um, there's a debate about like what actually motivates people. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of climate activists would say like the more extreme this future um, downside risks seem, the more action we'll get. Mm -hmm. But then that might also lead to like paralysis and doomerism of like, well, it doesn't matter what we do. Yeah. And so how do you all think about the interaction between predicting the future and motivating people to act today? Yeah. Um, on the first question, so it's not just the IEA, the National Energy Agency, it's also the US Department of Energy and also the IPCC. All three of them, and uh, energy companies like BP, all of them have underestimated the pace of improvement of renewables uh, and electric vehicles and storage uh, and clean hydrogen. And I think it's because uh, of a fundamental flaw that we have in our cognition. We expect linear change in technology, uh, whereas technology has exponential tendencies. Previous energy technologies like big power plants don't have fast learning curves. They don't drop in cost. Things like solar that we build like semiconductors or things like batteries that we build in almost similar ways have these fierce Moore's Law-like light versions of the Moore's Law uh, learning rates. I think the, the, the human side, I don't want to cast aspersions and say the IEA is captured by fossil fuels, but I'd say if you're a forecaster, there's a status quo bias. But like we used to say, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. 
no forecaster is ever fired for saying the future is going to look a lot like the status quo. Uh, but if you're a forecaster and you say crazy stuff, uh, which, which I've done, but I wasn't employed by anybody, uh, and you're wrong and you're employed by a large multi-government institution, your career is over. Uh, so there is that, that bias. Yeah. This uh, is why pessimism sounds smart. Yeah, you know, right? no, because Absolutely. you're just project. You're, it's a very sober, wise, rational, right? To be optimistic, you have to you have to count on some totally unknown thing breaking onto the scene. But of course, that's what happens all the time. Yeah. So I I think about human motivation a lot, um, and uh, you know, obviously in the context of, of being a neuroscientist and thinking about about behavior change in general, and I do I do think there's an element to motivation that requires some sort of immediate feedback. Right? The reason that many of us are wearing tracking devices and whatever is because it's giving us some feedback, right? And so the human brain, and in order to change our behavior, we need feedback, right? And so I think um, from a motivation perspective, uh, thinking of creative ways to give individuals real-time, you know, individualized feedback around what they're doing, the impact it's having, uh, and those types of things. You know, I, I think about the letter that I get from my uh, electricity company giving me like the good, the happy, the sad face and telling me like how I compare it to my neighbors. Like that's not particularly actionable, yeah. right? Like I was like, I used that energy last month. <laughs> Sorry about that, you know? Like, you know, it's, it's not really, you know, it's not really contemporary for me in order to change my behavior. And I think when you want behavior change, you have to think about motivation and you have to think about feedback. And that would be from a, from a neuroscience person's perspective mm -hmm. on climate change, that's what I would, that's what I would mm -hmm. say. I think one thing I've learned also, or I, I'm firmly in the camp of optimism and action you can take and we can solve this, is what my, that's my go-to for motivating people, that's how I operate. But one thing I have learned over time is that different populations are more motivated by different messages. Yep. And so the, yep. the really scary messages that are often exaggerated, they do worry me, I think they're dangerous in some ways, but they've also driven things like climate activists coming out in elections, which has affected future policy. So I think it's not a simple answer. Yeah. Do we have another question from the, the audience? Might be the last question we can take. The question. So one of the things that we discussed that was particularly interesting to me was around robotics. Mm -hmm. I think that is something that everyone talks about in terms of labor shortage and, and how we're close. And it seems like we're always very close. But uh, I know a couple of the panelists were, were very opinionated on kind of where we are in robotics and what it's going to take to actually get to that future of, uh, of, of labor abundance? Um, well, <clears throat> um, I, I, so I, I do have a PhD in robotics, so um, <laughs> I don't think that's start then. Yeah. But like, <laughs> also like, but like to, to the point of like pessimism sounds smart, like let's, let's, <laughs> let's caveat that with, with what I'm about to say, which is um, like we've seen incredible advances in, in AI technology, you know, you see Stable diffusion and GPT three and it's extraordinary. Um, I have I am I am have not yet seen those advances uh, play out in in the physical world, um, and so I think that there's uh, like robotics is is very hard um, and and like it's it's still very much research to get to the point where you have a robot doing many of the things that we have people doing now where they're it's just like unstructured. Uh, what we call them like unstructured tasks, um, but uh, I, I am 
again, like I, I'm optimistic that we'll get there. I just don't think that it's, it's it, it, but it will take a lot of work and it will take a lot of work that isn't actually necessarily happening right now. Mm. Um, like, uh, you know, it's like OpenAI shut down their, their robotics division. Um, and so, uh, so, so that's, that's one piece. And like very concretely, if we're gonna like get down to, to object level, like I, I think some things that, that would really speed things up is like co-development of hardware and software, mm -hmm. um, better, better simulations uh, for, for that, like simulating uh, physical reality to the fidelity that you need to train a robot to like even do something like this, yeah. like pick up a cup and turn it around in your hand um, is actually incredibly high. Um, and so, so more, more work on that. Um, and so, so those are, that's sort of my, yeah. AI is on an incredible trajectory right now though, yes. right? And it, it could cross some threshold that just completely changes this. Well, see, see, like, I mean, the, the, the funny thing though about the AI is that it's all, it seems to be coming actually in sort of the, the like reverse order that everybody expected, right. right? So you might have thought like the first thing that AI will do is, is automate manual labor. Yeah. Then it will automate maybe, you know, science or so, the legal profession or something. And then finally, the very last thing that will happen is robots will create art, <laughs> you know? And now what we're actually seeing is that, is that the like, first thing that's happening the first thing is that they can do images and yeah. fiction. There's, right? there's this classic thing in, robot, in robotics where it's like, or, or, or also, AI where it's like it's the things that we think are hard are actually the first things that are easy to automate People and it's the things chess would come long after walking yeah exactly yeah. but it's like yeah. the things that you know like evolution has spent millions and millions of years making us very good at um, that, that that are hard um, and so I think that just the one note of pessimism is that like I just think that like uh, a trajectory on on like computer-based AI like doesn't it's not gonna like hit some threshold and then like jump um, right. necessarily. It might, right. um, but, but I- Jump to robotics. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, right. like, because like, there's like, sensory motor systems, which I think is quite different than kind of- Than, than like language-based model. Right. Yeah, totally. or like language Absolutely. models. Yep. Um, and, and, and there are people who disagree with me. Um, so just like I want to flag that. So thank you. We are over time, but I want to give each of you one sentence, two at most, for any closing comments that you want to make. You can just pass if you'd like. Well, I just want to reemphasize um, two concepts uh, that I think are super important. One is abundance. That's the vision that we want for the future. And two is agency, you know, over, over optimism, right? Mm -hmm. believing, believing in our ability to fight the challenges no matter what they are and get to that future of abundance. Fantastic. All right, I figured out mine. Um, and it's just like build more awesome sci-fi stuff. <laughs> awesome. I'm going to end with empathy. Empathy. I love it. Thank you very much, uh, Jason, Amy, and Ben. And uh, stay tuned, everyone. We're going to take about a five-minute break, and we'll be back with an amazing panel moderated by Eli Dorado with Gitano Krupi from PML, uh, Dr. Liza Reed, who's done work on a number of things in energy and transmission, and Alex Depp. Thank, Thank you all you. very much. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks.